penultimate study, you'll be glad to know that next week we will conclude these studies, ready to move on. Um, so let's read from Colossians chapter 4. We're thinking tonight about evangelism. Evangelism. Colossians 4, and we'll read verses 2 through 6. Uh, so we'll retrace some steps, reading verses 2 through 6. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is God's will. Let's pray a blessing. Father, we thank you for these scriptures, familiar scriptures. Once again, we are entirely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We're not here, Father, for a mere academic exercise. We're here to receive from Almighty God. We're here to be ministered unto, that we in turn might be ministers. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, you might open the scripture, open your word to us tonight, our hearts to your word, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Folks, uh, please remember that as he writes this letter to the first century church in Colossae, the Apostle Paul languishes in prison. So as he writes, put yourself in his shoes. He languishes in prison. In Philippians chapter 1, 12 through 14, and Philippians 4, 22, for your own personal study, you can read there how Paul sheds light on what it was like for him to be incarcerated for the sake of Christ. Throughout his incarceration, it was likely that four Roman soldiers would have guarded Paul every hour of the day and night. Every few hours the God would change. It is clear, however, that Paul saw this as a wonderful opportunity for the Gospel. You see, brethren, he had a captive audience. The gods couldn't go anywhere since they were looking after him. And he couldn't go anywhere since the gods were looking after him. So rather than bemoan his circumstances, he writes asking for prayer. And what does he want to prayer for? Well, he writes verse 4. Pray, pray that I might proclaim it. Proclaim what? Well, the mystery of Christ. Proclaim the mystery of Christ. Proclaim the gospel. But Paul, you're incarcerated in, in a prison. You're in chains. I says, but I have a captive audience. <laughs> Pray that I might proclaim the gospel clearly as I should. 
The Apostle Paul understood that sharing the gospel without prayer would count for little or nothing. We're reminded here, brethren, are we not, of our utter dependence upon God. Whenever we seek to communicate something of the love of Christ to the lost and the dying, our utter dependence. If Paul prays thus, (laughs) what about you and I? I was recently chatting to an old ministerial colleague of mine, a brother and his dear wife, in point of fact, who went to Emmanuel Bible College whilst I was there in Birkenhead. And he was sharing with me about a, a fellow colleague, a colleague of his, who was in a, a local fraternity not far from where he was ministering. And this colleague of his was boasting to him about a particular evangelistic strategy that he and his church leaders had developed for their town. The strategy he boasted was brilliant. It would definitely work. And so the mission week arrived. They were convinced it could not fail. And indeed, everybody turned up. Everybody, that is, except God. They turned up also. The result was, see, it was perfect from a human perspective, but God didn't come. The result, no one was converted. As Paul shares the gospel, he is praying that God would turn up there in that prison cell. Chained between four prison gods that God would turn up and bless his efforts and bring forth fruit. And we know, brethren, do we not, from Paul's letter to the Philippians, the result of his witness whilst in prison was that people were converted. We read of Caesar's household. Caesar's household were converted through the efforts of this captive evangelist. During my service with OMS International, I regularly visited Northern Ireland. And during one of these visits to Northern Ireland a number of years ago now, I had the privilege of visiting a church that pulls about 3,000 people each Sunday evening. Every Sunday, every Sunday, they were having decisions for the Lord Jesus Christ. As you might expect, I took the opportunity to chat to the senior pastor. He has a ministerial team, of course. But I chatted to the senior pastor and I asked him what was the secret of his church's growth. He looked at me and says, I tell you that it is an open secret. An open secret. He says the church draws between eight and nine hundred every week to the prayer meeting. Yes. That's a good percentage. Eight to nine hundred to the prayer meeting, three thousand on a Sunday. They pray for the pastor, they pray for the ministerial team, they pray for the preaching of the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that therefore the gospel message goes out with power. Power. Brethren, prayer and evangelism, prayer and world mission are inextricably linked. And Paul knew that. He understood it. Chained between 
gods in a prison. He said, pray for me that I might preach the gospel as I should. As an, an old Puritan preacher once put it, when God intends great blessing for his people, he sets his people a praying. Alongside Alpha, alongside Christianity Explored, alongside soul and every other means of evangelism we will only be used by God unto the salvation of precious souls if we pray then we will be an effective witness for Jesus wherever wherever we don't need to be in Northern Ireland, brethren, though the spiritual climate there arguably is different. We don't need to be in Latin America, the countries experiencing revival fire, though arguably the situation there is different. We don't need to be in the Africas or in maybe South Korea where there's great blessing. We don't need to be. We can know the blessing of God wherever God has placed us. How do I know that? Because it's the same God. Yes. Same God in Northern Ireland as in Latin America, as in the Africas, as in South Korea and, and uh, Southeast Asia. So think for a moment. Think about the locations where God has placed us. Think about it. Those locations are unique. The, the locations where God has placed you are unique to you. Where he has placed me, those locations are unique to me. Some of us are in non-Christian homes. My wife Deb came to faith from a non-church-going background. She used to comment how it sure keeps you on your toes when you're the only committed Christian in the home. Yes. Does it not? I don't know. I wasn't there. I've never been there. But I'm sure it does. Many of us are in the workplace. Some of us are in education. Some of us are looking after our family members. So we meet others who are looking after their kith and kin. Some of us are in retirement. And we may be tempted to think that the Lord has put us out to grass. But my friends, there is no grass where we are tonight. Because we are not in a field. We are in an airport departure lounge. Oh yes. Flights are being called home every single day. And we are rubbing shoulders with people whose flights are being called home. God has not put you to grass. You're in an airport departure lounge. The Lord has placed us where we are to remind our fellow passengers to ensure that Jesus is on board when their flight is called home. Then they will be on the right plane for the right destination. Wherever God has placed us, there he has called us to be a witness for Christ. And if we bathe the situation and the circumstance with prayer, then we can be guaranteed, guaranteed God's blessing. Paul writes, pray for us that I might speak it, preach the gospel. As I should. Do we need qualifications? Do we need a degree from a Bible college or theological education? Well, these might be of help, but we don't necessarily need them to be effective witnesses. Most of all, most of all, we need Christ. 
in Colossians verses 5, 4, 5 and 6, just two verses tonight, 5 and 6, next week we'll finish from 7 through to the end 18. But two verses, Paul highlights here what I'm suggesting, suggesting are three non-negotiables. Non-negotiables we need to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. The first is, we need to live with integrity. Paul writes, verse 5, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Literally, Paul wrote, Walk in wisdom. This word walk picks up all the teaching that he has already given back in Colossians chapter 3. How are Christians to live? Well, Christians, he said, remember, are to live by putting off certain things, putting off immorality, putting off misbehavior, by way of example, and putting on other things, putting on compassion, putting on mercy, putting on becoming like Christ. If we are going to be good witnesses for Jesus, it isn't only what we say that matters, but also the integrity of our lives. We are to walk, we are to live out the Christian life in a consistent way. Specifically, Paul highlighted, isn't he? Specifically for the sake of outsiders. Who are the outsiders? Who are they? The outsiders of which... Of whom the Apostle Paul writes here. Well, Mark in his Gospel gives us a clue, I think. Mark talks often about the crowd. You read Mark's Gospel sometimes. He regularly refers to the crowd. But the crowd he is referring to, uh, they are not the in crowd. They are not those who are close to Jesus. Mark is referring to the out crowd. He is referring to the outsiders. It is to these, I believe, the Apostle Paul is referring so, so be careful how you live for the sake of the outsiders. Interestingly, the Bible never talks about outsiders as unsaved. It's not an expression the Bible uses. It's an expression we use. It's not in the scripture. Scripture doesn't refer to the outsiders as the unsaved. It refers to the outsiders as the lost. You want to be Theological about it. The lost. The Bible prefers this term lost for the outsiders because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost in their sins and they don't know it. The result, of course, is that they are wrapped up in themselves, in their self-sufficiencies, in their careers, in their educations, in their families, wrapped up in their pleasures, Believing that that, that only this world matters. That that resonates, doesn't it? We're surrounded by these people. Outsiders, they are lost. They are consumed by what happens in the physical realm only. The call of the apostle is to walk in wisdom. So that Christians are a good advert. For these dear folks are signposts to an altogether different world and value system. So here, brethren, is the reminder of the vital importance 
of solid Christian character. Men and women, boys and girls who are in Christ, need those, their lives to back up what they say. I heard a story of a man who was preaching in a church in his hometown one evening. He had preached about being a Christian and what that meant about walking with God. He gave a very good evangelistic address by all accounts. The next morning he got on a bus to go to work as you do on a Monday morning. He gave a pound coin to the bus driver for a 60 pence fare. However, the driver gave him 60 pence change, not 40 pence. Just before his stop, he went back to the driver and said, Excuse me, sir, you gave me too much change. You should have given me 40 pence, you gave me 60 pence. And the driver looked at him and smiled. And he says, I know. I heard you speak last night. And I just wanted to make sure that your Christianity made a difference on a Monday morning. <laughs> what a challenge. What a challenge to live with integrity. Because friends, people are watching. Yes. And people are listening. And oftentimes, our lives do not support our words. And it puts people off. <coughs> we are, we will not help the lost find Jesus if we are one person on a Sunday and somebody entirely different on a Monday and throughout the rest of the week. And so the first, it seems here, the first non-negotiable, understanding that all this is supported and girded in prayer, the first non-negotiable is Paul says, Live with integrity towards outsiders. Secondly, we need to take every opportunity. Paul writes, that's a part of verse 5. Make the most of every opportunity. If we're going to be witnesses for Christ, we must take every opportunity that comes our way. My mum likes a programme on television called Bargain Hunt. I vaguely remember seeing it from time to time. Bargain. She's passionate about it. And she says, oh, they must, the, the competitors, they must take every opportunity to get the bargain before it goes on auction or something like that. That got me thinking, Christians... Paul is telling us Christians that we should, should be on a, on a bargain hunt, as it were. Snapping up the opportunities that come our way. Because brethren, if we think about it, they come our way. They come our way. Christians live between two worlds. The world of the Bible and the world in which God has placed us. And here is an encouragement to work out what these opportunities are in reality. There are lots of natural opportunities that come up during life, don't they? I mean, headlines and stories uh, that grab people's attentions, present us with opportunities. The Brexit debate, of course. 
presents us with opportunities, does it not? Because people are concerned. People are unsure of the future. Presents us with an opportunity. Overhear a conversation, maybe in the doctor's surgery. Presents us with an opportunity to speak something about the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. The general election. It presents us with an opportunity, doesn't it? We're all going to vote for a new government. Will it make any difference? What does our country need? A new government? Not at all. It needs a saviour. It needs a saviour. Presents us with an opportunity, of course. High profile terror attacks. Presents us all these things. Natural life. Stories that grab people's attentions. They all present us with opportunities. Brethren, Paul says, we need to be awake. That we might grab the opportunities that come our way. Who knows? We might be the last person, the last spiritual life somebody has before the call to eternal count. That's sobering, isn't it? Oh, you say, but I didn't didn't ask for that responsibility. Maybe not. But nevertheless... You're in Christ. Why are, you? Why are you here? Why has God extended these days through you and I? To save the lost. He that winneth souls is wise. Grab the opportunities. I was reading an article by the president of Open Doors, Eliah. And uh, he coined a phrase in this article that, that intrigued me. Let me share the phrase. He says, too many Christians have been cagoules. Too many Christians have been cagooled. Now you will understand what Lyle is suggesting if you ever hit the outdoors and see people all togged up ready for that mountain walk. Because you get a cagoule on and you all you tog it all up, don't you? To the point where you can only see just about what's immediately ahead of you. And that's what Lyle is suggesting. Too many Christians are cagooled. We're all cagooled, toggled up to such an extent we can only see in a blinkered fashion what's ahead of us. In the meantime, there are lots of opportunities on the fringes, on the periphery. But we're missing them. We can only see what's right immediately ahead of us. We don't need cagooled Christians says Lyle, we need men and women with a vision to see and understand the times listen, and the opportunities which these days afford us. I was challenged by that. He says these days afford us opportunities. If we're cagooled, we'll miss them. We need to be delivered of our cagoules, our anoraks, if you like. There's an amazing scripture. You know something? (laughs) Lyle pointed it out to us in this article. And I have missed it for years. Missed it for years. 1 Chronicles 12.32 He says we need a, a generation like those of the tribe of Issachar. Pardon? We need a generation of Christians like those of the tribe of Issachar who, I quote, understood the times and knew what the people of God should do. You look the scripture up. It's there. 1 Chronicles 12.32 We need a generation of Christians who are like the tribe of Issachar understanding the times and know what the people of God should do. We need, my friends, to live with integrity 
We need, my friends, to take every opportunity. And thirdly, we need to speak appropriately. Speak appropriately. Paul writes, verse 6, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Mm. Paul is suggesting, I believe, that we are sensitive as we share the gospel. That we are gracious. Now there was, of course, a period in the history of the Christian church when hellfire and damnation preaching was particularly popular, especially at funerals. I'm not entirely sure such an approach would be appropriate today. Of course, we need to preach sin. We need to preach the wrath and the judgment of God. But Paul says, do it with grace. Do it with grace. In my experience, many people object not so much to the fact of, of judgment. They object not so much to the fact of hellfire and damnation, but they object to the way some preachers seem to delight fiendishly dangling sinners over the fires of hell. <laughs> we need to do it with grace. Robert Murray McShane, one of my spiritual heroes, my, he only lived to be 29, nearly 30. <laughs> what he packed in, in those few short years of ministry, is mind-boggling. He didn't write a book per se, but you can get his memoirs, full of his sermons and his, and his notes. It's worth getting hold of the memoirs of Robert Murray McShane. He died in 1843. He was noted for his outstanding godliness and Christ-likeness. On one occasion he was speaking to a friend, Andrew Bonner, another famous name, a man who wrote extensively, particularly about prayer. And he was chatting to Andrew Bonner at a fraternity one Monday morning. And he asked him, Andrew, what did you preach last night? Bonner, a faithful minister of the gospel, replied, I preached on hell. McShane continued, did, you, did the Lord enable you, my brother, to preach it tenderly? I like that. Yeah, preach hell, of course. But preach it tenderly. Speak appropriately. A. Catherine Hankey, and a beautiful hymn that I, 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 is definitely in uh, Redemption Hymnal, because I remember it from those, those days. Tell me the old, old story. She says this in one of the verses, Tell me the story softly. Yes. I like that. Tell me the story softly, with earnest tones and grace. Remember I am the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always, if you would really be, in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. Softly. Tenderly. The Reverend Stanley Banks, the former principal of Emmanuel Bible College, used to say, we need to be winsome to win some. <laughs> seasoned with salt we haven't the time but this is an interesting expression in the original Greek it paints an interesting picture in the ancient world this phrase could mean using some wit as well as wisdom using some wit 
as well as wisdom. The Jerusalem Bible translates it thus. Talk to them agreeably and with a flavour of wit. And try to fit your answer to the needs of each one. And so we need to try and work out where a person is. Where they're coming from, what their real problems about faith are, and then with the Apostle Paul, speak appropriately. If it comes from a life of integrity, if it comes, friends, with one who's embracing every opportunity, then it's a powerful tool. Whilst I was studying at Emmanuel Bible College in Birkenhead, I did an evangelistic placement with the Emmanuel Church in Toxteth. A fellow student and I uh, entered into uh, one of the church's door-to-door visitation programs. And uh, I have to say at the time, I was somewhat reluctant to do so. You see, I, I knew Toxteth a little. It had a reputation. Still does. It's changed a lot, man, these days. You want to visit there. Anyway, we're knocking on doors, and we knock on a door, and a man appears and says, What do you want? Here we go. You know what I mean. What do you want? I said, Well, we're here from the local church. He replied, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. And began to slam the door. Now, my, my, my colleague began to turn and walk away, as you do. But something prompted me. I thought, I'm not having this. And he can't do with everybody. But as my partner turned to go, I says, My friend, what are you not interested in? Because we haven't spoken to you about anything yet. (laughs) Well, I'm not interested in God, he said. Oh, I said, said, you're not interested in God? I said, that's interesting. God is the most interesting person that I know. So how can you be not interested in God? I'm not interested in God, he says, because he doesn't exist. My brother, my friend then turned to go with us. End of conversation. I'm not finished with this guy. I says, Oh, I said, may I congratulate you before you shut the door? And the gentleman poked his nose around the door and says, Congratulate me for what? He says, Get a little angry, I guess. I said, Well, can I congratulate you for, for having enough faith to believe that there's no God? That must take an awful lot of faith. Don't talk nonsense, he said. I said, No, no, I must. Seriously, he said, What evidence, what evidence have you got to tell me? There is no God. Science, he says. Science. Oh, I said, oh, that's interesting. What error of science tells me there is no God? Evolution, he said. Now, my friend was halfway down the path of this stage. He gave him up. And he says, come on, come on, let's go. He says, he says, end of the line, my partner. He says, end of the line. And I whispered back to him, he says, not quite. The Lord prompted me and I said to him, tell me, my friend. Are we talking about macro-evolution or micro-evolution? Now, what I didn't know is that this man was into them both in a big way. And he he looked at me rather aggressively and said, I've eaten my dinner just now, but come back tomorrow night and we'll talk about it. So I went back the following night and we, I, we spoke together for four hours about the God he didn't believe in. <laughs> four hours about the God he didn't believe in. And at the end of it, I have to say that the God he didn't believe in, I didn't believe in either. 
Because that God doesn't exist. And I simply invited him. His name was Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, we'll just come to the church. Literally around the corner from where he lived. He huffed and puffed. And I went on my way because the program I was on was was a short program. I heard later, however, from the pastor that he came to church. And after a number of weeks was wonderfully gloriously saved. Isn't that amazing? And Jimmy Thompson is now a deacon in that church in Tampa. And all it was being is, okay, a little bit of wit, a little bit of sarcasm, but listening to the Holy Spirit. And I didn't know, I didn't know he was reading about micro or macro evolution. But it was just something that caught him. Come back the following night. I learned some valuable lessons on those evangelistic placements. I tell you, I was placed in in Edinburgh for a while. Toxteth, Hansworth in, in Birmingham, Birkenhead. And I learned to use whatever wit and wisdom God has blessed me with. Graciously, cautiously, sensitively, yes. But I learned to listen as well as to speak. My friends, our aim isn't to win arguments, but to communicate the gospel with a concern and a passion to see the lost come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, understanding that whatever we endeavour to do for the sake of Christ is, is bathed in prayer, he says these prerequisites live with integrity. You must do it. Make every opportunity count. And you need to speak appropriately. Remember, brethren, by way of conclusion, there will be no evangelism in heaven. Not a bit of it. There will be no evangelism in heaven. Now is the time to engage in evangelism. And that is why the church is here. To evangelize. Too many evangelical churches are simply that. We are evangelical in doctrine, but we've been neutered at our nerve level with regard to evangelism. If mission is not at the heart of what we are about as a church, then brethren, we have lost the plot. When churches lose the plot, in this manner they become like ghettos, inward looking, and all sorts of problems arise. You look at the churches that are growing. They're not looking inward. They are looking out. You've doubtless heard of the famous Pitcairn Island. Well, if you've read Mutiny on the Bounty, or you've seen the film, you'll be familiar with Fletcher Christian and his Pitcairn Island. Do you know that the island is in terminal decline? There are about 300 people there now, and they are doomed to pass out of existence very soon. Because the gene pool, G-E-N-E, is too small. They are too inbred. And scientists tell us, unless hundreds of new people from outside move in, Pitcairn Island is doomed. Brethren, this is a sociological and biological fact. Churches, however, can get to that point 
also. Now, there may be 70 or 100 members in a church. But if there are two inbred, because evangelism has crept off the agenda a long time ago, then no one has been converted in a long time, and the church is now consumed by mere maintenance rather than mission. How many churches do you know consumed with maintenance only? They are doomed to die. No big surprise, is there? Because even as we speak, lights are going out in these valleys. And throughout South Wales, churches just die. Doomed. Brethren, we have to encourage each other to stop merely looking within our churches, analysing and psychoanalyzing our problems and perceived needs. We need to listen to Jesus who says, open your eyes. And what he says, lift up your eyes and look at the fear. For they are white already of the harvest. Matthew chapter, sorry, John 4 verse 35. We are consumed with ourselves. Oh, I have these needs. The Lord knows those needs. We're consumed with ourselves. Oh, we have problems of, of infrastructure. We have leadership issues. The Lord knows all about those. He says, lift up your eyes and look out. 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 Don't become a spiritual pit Karen island. As many churches are in danger, they are doomed. Let's focus our eyes on the harvest fields of our community for our and our country. I suppose in many ways it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? When we realise, friends, that the people we're seeking to reach for Christ have a massive problem, a massive problem. It's an eternal problem. They are lost eternity without Christ. When we realise that, the little problems we have about a flower rotor or the kind of music we use in the church or the makeup and feel of our Sunday worship, then these turn out to be hardly any issues at all compared to the massive problem that men and women, boys and girls of Trachton and Pontypridd have. They are lost. They are sheep without a shepherd. Paul prays. Pray. He says, pray for me. That I might speak to them the gospel. The way I should. How should you, Paul? With integrity. Making the most of every opportunity. And speaking appropriately. Father, we thank you for these scriptures. And for the challenge they bring. And for the reminder. Of why we're here. Forgive us, Father. Often your church has become self-obsessed, inward-looking. Help us to do as Christ exalts. Lift up our eyes. Look on the fields. They are ripe. They are ripe. Father, we doubt that. We explain. We explain it away. <laughs> we avoid it. But you're telling us, Lord, your scripture is telling us tonight that the fields are ripe unto harvest. 
Change our perspectives, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So next week we'll finish looking at seven verses seven through eighteen of chapter four. Pressing on, I call it pressing on.